Hello, and welcome to In Our Spare Time. Quote, a language is not just words. It's a culture, a tradition, a unification of a community, a whole history that creates what a community is. Unquote. Words of Noam Chomsky. Our four panellists today are organising a conference here in Oxford in March, entitled Language, Mobility and Belonging. As a quartet, their research ranges right across the discipline of sociolinguistics, from studies of the Polish diaspora, to the use of Hebrew in Palestinian refugee communities, to the accent and dialect usage of the inhabitants of Bermuda, and to the language learning in migrant integration programmes in Germany. The present age is one of ever-increasing international migration and displacement, from war zones and otherwise, and issues of cultural integration can never be more pertinent nor more complicated. And having an understanding of the interplay between use of language and the dynamics of social identity has never been more important. With me to discuss the conference and their research are Rosemary Hall, a second-year DFL student at Magdalen College, Dr Nancy Hawker, a postdoc at St Bennet's Hall, Leonie Schulter, a first-year DFL student at Green Templeton College, and Dr Kinga Kosminska, a recently graduated DFL student from Somerville College. Thank you very much for joining me. I think we just start this podcast by talking to you individually about the fascinating research that you're doing and done. Kinga, you have studied the um, the Polish diaspora yes. and how sort of language affects their sense of social identity. Is that correct? Uh, yes. So in my DPhil study, I looked at a group of Polish-speaking uh, migrants in the UK, and I was interested in their identity construction process so how they make sense of the world around them and how the uh, what role language plays in it and how they construct their identities and interactions so how uh, they draw on different languages that they know in order to index their sociocultural positioning in the world i interviewed a group of uh, 30 speakers from uh, who came to the uk to study but prior to that they received part of their education in Poland they came to the UK to study and then they were proficient in both English and Polish at a similar level and um i was interested in these stories and how those stories build into structured experiences of life in the UK and how that was represented in the language used so um i looked at both the social discourses in which my participants participated <laughs> and um and at the language used so how the social discourses were represented in the tiny little detail of their speech so that this social discourse meaning the uh, radius of social interaction who they they, they talk to yeah so uh, by those social discourses i kind of mean um discourses on um language nationality culture what they uh, so how they understood polishness and how they understood britishness and how that um interacted in their daily lives and how that influenced their understanding of their own position in the british context in okay. relation to the polish context as well so if that makes it a bit clear it is maybe because it's a technical term that i've not come across uh, okay. before so you said you interviewed these participants yes. so i conducted in one to one interviews with them uh which centered around the stories in the UK and what so they told me all about their their reasons for coming here why how they lived here how they and they told me uh, a lot about their social networks as well and about their views and culture and, and language as well and then those individual stories build into different identities that um 
that they expressed. So there were people who were more nationally oriented. So there were people who found their place in the social structure in the UK by being part of the Polish diaspora community. So they would be more oriented towards the diaspora community and Poland itself. So Poland would be still like the point of reference for them in their daily lives. And the Polish language played an important part in their daily lives because that was an um, the language that allowed them to express themselves is really Polish and they said that they understood this Polishness as um, uh, their national identity so that was an essential part of who they were and these were people who were very active in the Polish diaspora community and uh, those uh, Polish organizations here and who many times said that they wanted to go back to Poland and uh, here there were gender differences so mostly men said that they would like to go back to Poland whereas women not so much, even if they were nationally oriented. Uh, but uh, apart from those nationally oriented individuals on the other end of this extreme, there were people who were uh, very cosmopolitan, who kind of rejected nationality as a basis for identity, and who oriented themselves more towards the global economy and the English-speaking world. And that was represented in the language used, in that, that they were developing new speaking styles in Polish, because I looked at their... Polish. Is it? So when you say representing their language use, we're talking quite a technical level of the... Yes, so um, how so they were using certain linguistic features, so certain phonetic features, so they pronounced their consonants and they used new intonation patterns in Polish that I wasn't familiar with as a speaker of Polish, and uh, that had to do with their new position in the sociocultural metrics if you want to kind of look at it that way right because they were trying to express their new positioning in the world by being polish but in the uk and being members of this of this transnational community that is a new sort of cultural formation right because they want to say yeah we're polish but uh, we're also here and that um it doesn't necessarily result in us being only nationally Polish because we have a different strategies for life. So that, for instance, their social networks were more international. Um, they would be less willing to go back to Poland many times. And that also influenced the way they spoke, as I kind of showed in my PhD. I don't know, maybe to someone who's used to doing large scientific studies, 30 participants might sound like a rather small sample size, but there are quite good reasons why yes. it's not so feasible to, uh, to study yes. more people. So um, it might seem as a small sample because usually people doing sociology or other are coming from a different uh, social science would say that uh, they want big samples. But in linguistics, it is quite impossible many times for uh, practical reasons as well, because as a researcher, you... Um, you have to transcribe the data. It usually has to be thoroughly done. So in a way, you have to transcribe all the little tiny detail of someone's speech, and that takes a lot of time. So like one hour of an interview can take up um, to, I don't know, 15 hours of transcription. So that basically means that um, for the purpose of my DPhil project, I wasn't able to interview 100 participants because I wouldn't have had time for that. Leonie, you're looking at um, other immigrant populations, but in a slightly different context. So you, if I understand it correctly, you focus on language learning in Germany, particularly these migrant integration programs mm -hmm. that have been set up in the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. so I'm basically doing the opposite of what Kinga's doing. As I mentioned before, while Kinga and my other colleagues are trying to understand how speakers might be challenging, take it for granted, relationships between nationality and language use, I'm looking at how Germany 
on a political level and an educational level and a policy level is trying to enforce this idea through language requirements for migrants and refugees. In 2005, Germany introduced this idea of integration, or started to get more serious about it. And they introduced so-called integration programs that required migrants and refugees to learn German um, and to learn about German history and politics and to pass an exam. And this is facilitated through um, government-funded courses that run for six to nine months. Um, and they're all over Germany and they run under a nationwide curriculum. And um, what I found really striking was this idea of integration. What does the concept actually mean? Because what we're finding is that it's not very clearly defined in German official discourse. There's no very clear definition of what that entails. So my general question is, if we take a look at these classrooms, there hasn't been any research on this, what can we find about the interaction that takes place in these spaces? How are migrants going on this journey of integration, and how do they come out at the end? And more specifically, how does this concept of integration become embedded within this interaction? So I'm looking at this firstly on, a, on an ethnographic level, spending time in these classrooms, uh, assisting in the teaching, um, interviewing teachers and migrants and refugees, but I'm also looking at it on a linguistic level to see how far this idea becomes embedded within people's ideologies of belonging to Germany. So, um, because I, yeah. as I understand it, these programs have yeah. have two different elements. There's right. you know the purely language learning acquisition, but right. also these elements of learning cultural history of mm -hmm. Germany, and there's certainly a slightly a broader mission mm -hmm. than just simply uh, learning the language. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, Germany is not unique in this context. Most countries in the world have language requirements for migrants and refugees, and surely it serves a functional purpose, and um, learning the language of your host country is definitely a resource. I do challenge the idea that this should be a requirement, um, and I challenge it because it's unclear how this affects migrants and their trajectories in the host country and what it might be instilling in them about their position in this new country. Because as a linguistic anthropologist, I can't remove language from culture and from identity and from ideology and of politics course. and so on. Um, so I find it very difficult to say we're purely going to look at language as something functional, something that has to be learned um, as a tool. Um, rather, I say, no, it's a social practice, so we have to understand the cultural and political implications that go along with learning a language, especially in these contexts. Um, is it something that uh, you discovered, again, please forgive me, mm. we can cut this out if this is uh, not a pertinent question, but mm. that you have maybe a large American population that mm. might be really quite proficient and fluent in English, mm. but doesn't yet have any German, and how that plays out. I just, it's a purely anecdotal evidence for myself, but I have a friend who's doing the Austrian version of Teach First. Mm. He finds there's this quite difficult uh, situation in school where you have some very, very um, bright uh, immigrant and refugee children who are extremely fluent in English, but are put in very low sets just because at that point when they arrive, of course, they don't have any German. Mm. And I don't know whether you feel this is, is a widespread phenomenon. That's an interesting question, but I think it's very complicated, and mm. I think it depends on how you approach it. On the one hand, if you look at urban spaces in Germany, English is becoming the language, the lingua franca of um, young urban startups and things like that. So speaking English um, is a really important tool, in Berlin especially, where I'm looking at. Um, but this also depends on where you're coming from. If you're an American, a white American, and you speak English, that's different. But if you're a Syrian, or if you're Iranian, or if you're a person of color, there might be different issues that are facing you. So I don't really know what to say, but I, what I can say is that whether you speak English or not, you have to learn German.
So it's a requirement for everyone, unless you're from the EU. Does that answer your question? Or? They found uh, in other contexts that actually these um, immigrants and refugees come with their own multilingualism, which mm. will include a European language. If it's from mm. Africa, they might know French and other parts of the world, mm. they'd know English. But that is not valued when they come to the host country. They still have to be categorized in a separate group, which yeah. is uh, that they have to integrate on on a different playing field than if you come as a, let's say, uh, a, a privileged economic, right. somebody with a degree, let's say, from, from uh, Europe or North America. That multilingualism or just English language skills are valued differently in a kind of economic market uh, point of view. Yeah. yeah, I guess what I was trying to say is that when, when you ask a question like that, you have to think about what what kind of belonging we're talking about. So on a local level, and that's why I mentioned sort of multilingualism in Berlin and speaking English, that actually has a lot of capital, a lot of cultural capital. Speaking English is, or speaking French or another European language will mean something if you're living in an urban space, but if you want to become a citizen or you want to be a permanent resident on a national level, speaking those languages isn't necessarily useful. So there's different forms of movement that we have to consider and different forms of belonging that we have to consider within that question. Because there can be huge variation within a single country, of course, between Berlin, the rest of Germany. Yeah. And, and of course, there's different requirements for different countries um, and for different regions of the world. Um, and generally, the problem in Germany is that foreign degrees are generally not uh, recognized. Mm. I think it's only within the EU and some other, maybe the US, I'm not quite sure actually, mm. but if you have a foreign degree, that won't translate into a into a degree in Germany. So these are a lot of hurdles that are facing you on top of it. Rosemary, so you're looking at another immigration-based issue in uh, Bermuda, but you say it's, it's everything's kind of slightly turned in its head in Bermuda, and again, we kind of, well, whether you can have three opposites and you end up somewhere different, but I think you're, you're opposite again. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that's become clear in, in the conversation we've been having so far is that in contexts where immigrant populations are people of colour, are disadvantaged in some way, usually economically. These tend to be in Europe, in the US, in the UK. You have one type of linguistic situation. Um, you have policy and, to a large extent, policing going on um, about the way people speak, about the way immigrants speak. And a lot of the time those goal goalposts are ever movable. You know, It's very convenient for governments, native speakers of, say, English in the UK, to be the judge of whether a, an immigrant is proficient in the host language. Um, and as Nancy said, whether or not they're multilingual in all kinds of other ways uh, is, is largely ignored. Mm. Um, but I work on Bermuda and that's a, an interesting context because it's a place in the world, it's, it's a post-colonial context and it's a place in the world where immigrants or a large part of the Im immigrant community is white and very wealthy. Um, Bermuda's a tax haven. What you have in Bermuda is you have um, white wealthy immigrants who come to work in, in the financial sector in Bermuda and um, usually they are speakers of what linguists call a, you can't really do scare quotes on the radio, but standard variety. So you'll have immigrants coming to Bermuda from the UK, from Canada, from the US, and they'll tend to speak a variety of English that's privileged around the world so it makes it easier to get a job makes it easier to get housing all those kinds of things um, and I research the ways in which expats as they're called in Bermuda um, white wealthy expats use Bermudian English which is a very unusual dialect as a way to try to construct belonging in their new place um, so I'm interested in the ways in which expats in Bermuda perform 
basically perform black English in Bermuda. They it, it kind of speaks for itself. If you if you hear some, I'm definitely not going to perform any for you on the radio That's today. That's fine, don't worry. But uh, basically, I look at the ways in which these expats um, appropriate features, linguistic features of Bermudian English, in order to seem authentically Bermudian, in order to, I guess on the surface, in order to try to seem like they belong and assert a, a, some kind of authentic Bermudian identity, but also at the same time as that you've got mockery and racism going on in those linguistic performances, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it, it goes both ways. It's mm. maybe on a certain surface uh, a level of conformity, of uh, appropriation to uh, assimilate to the environment that they find themselves in, but maybe at the same time something slightly less... Uh, yeah, um, I think as, as linguists um, it's always important to... We, as Leonie said, we can't separate culture from language, um, and the context of somebody who speaks a variety that will open all kinds of doors for them in life, appropriating features of another dialect is is very very different from somebody who's, uh, say, moved to Berlin, and their their livelihood depends on on the government's perception of mm. of their language proficiency. Mm. And so, yeah, the social context in which they're having to learn the language makes all the difference to, yeah. to how that is done. <laughs> and we're well, also talking about learning how to perform a dialect rather than learning a second language, mm. um, which in, in many ways is a lot easier. Um, it would be difficult for, a, say, a, a British expat in Bermuda like me to fully acquire um, a real Bermudian accent, but it, um, my research has shown that it's quite easy for them to pick up on a few iconic features and reproduce them in a parodic way. Mm. Uh, the thing that picked up, so I'm very sorry that we've come to you uh, last, uh, Nancy, but this use of appropriation of language for mockery reminds me of uh, your research, that so you're working on language in Israel and Palestine, and particularly about uh, use of Hebrew by the Palestinian community. Right, so the expectation is that these are two monolingual groups and that the languages they use of Palestinians Arabic for Israelis Hebrew index their nationality and because of the conflict this this equation is exacerbated and made very salient but then there's also apart from the conflicts also points of contact and um, what I was looking at was a mass phenomenon of migrant workers so Palestinian manual laborers who go to Israel to work and then come back home and They've acquired Hebrew in the process, or some Hebrew. I mean, how many people are we talking, roughly? Right, so before uh, before the Second Intifada, so before the year 2000, it was estimated that about 118,000 uh, Palestinian workers from the West Bank, so this is out of a population of about 2.2 million. Uh, so it was a large proportion. It's always been, so for instance in the West Bank it was 35% of the labour force was working inside Israel for many years. Now it's greatly reduced due to um, due to movement restrictions. So now it's about uh, 16 to 18% of the okay. workforce. Uh, predominantly male and predominantly in construction and, um, and cleaning jobs, so manual labourers. And uh, so these people learn some kind of what I thought would be functional basic Hebrew in order to have these jobs and access this economy and uh, also to get through the checkpoints in order to access the economy so they'd have to also deal with some kind of military administration. So that I thought that it would be precisely this kind of functional use that we expect somehow from migrants in order to get by. 
and then um, I was going out to document this, and then what I found was uh, something you allude to, that they have many different uses for Hebrew, and uh, some of them, in fact, were uh, to poke fun at, um, at uh, positions of authority or positions of power. So um, there'd be, for instance, uh, there was one woman who was criticizing, she was criticizing a man she knew for being, uh, like, thinking he's just, uh, you know, as just the best, he's the big cheese in his little community, and he's such a big head. And he's not only married one woman, he's married two women. Can you imagine that? It, and he's a, you know, university professor, and the word, she she called him, he thinks he's the, he's, he's the big boss, and the big boss she used Hebrew for. In In Hebrew... In Israeli Hebrew, that word just means the boss, the director. Right. In pa when Palestinians use it, it means the guy who thinks he's the big boss. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's got that parodic, it's added sarcasm just by virtue of using Hebrew. And so there's this, there are these political connotations which obviously link the way people use language then to the, you know, the socio-economic and political context in interesting and surprising ways. And, uh, and obviously this mockery was one of them. Yeah, so in your case, it's a mockery of authority. Yes, and not necessarily Israeli, but by association, by association. Hebrew, Hebrew gets associated with that. Uh, well, it's from, from Rosemary's, it's the reverse. It's, mm. it's I would say what my white appropriators of, of Bermudian English are doing is mocking race. There are all sorts of clues in the, the content of their performances and in, in things like the voice quality of their performances that show that they're not just mocking a kind of generic Bermudianness. that there very definitely is a racial element to these performances. But I think what, what Nancy and I have in common, is, and in fact all of us in our, our examinations of, of language in these contexts, is that we see it, as sociolinguists now do, as we see language as a resource rather than as something that naturally happens to all of us. We see speakers as agents who make use of language in order to construct identity. No, no, you're nodding your head there. Is that something that you... I agree with you? that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, as I, I promised earlier, we should go into a, a few more of the specifics of actually how the research is, is collected in the field. I know that you, Rosemary, you went out to Bermuda for several months and you know, went round with a microphone recording people. Yes, it's a very nice place to do field work. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, the classic way of collecting fieldwork for um, sociolinguists, and it's, it's very different for linguistic anthropologists and depending on your subdiscipline, but what I did was the, the classic sociolinguistic interview um, with a twist. So the classic sociolinguistic interview is a way of collecting a large amount of high quality speech data in a relatively short amount of time. So you sit down with a speaker you try to make them comfortable, you have a long conversation about their life, their views, on anything really, anything to get them speaking, again, scare quotes, naturally. Because, of course, if people know they're being listened to, they may well change the way that they speak. So course, yeah. the aim is to have a, a comfortable, long conversation, and then depending on which linguistic variables you're interested in, you may include a, a reading task or a, a word list or something for somebody to read so that you can go away and analyse those linguistic variables. What I found, because I'm interested in this linguistic performance of race, of Black Bermudian English, often I didn't need to prompt people to do this because as a, a, a white Bermudian interviewer, uh, they came out on their own. There was an assumption that I was complicit in these 
strategies of mocking black Bermudians. Um, so often I didn't even have to ask, but one thing I did do in my interviews was ask speakers, what does a Bermudian English accent sound like and can you do a bit? And these really rather problematic performances would uh, flow out. <laughs> and so you felt that you know, because of being the person you were, you could get a sense just by doing a one-on-one -on -one interview of how white Bermudians might speak to each other because I guess you, you are one. I guess so. Um, I mean, they're, they're, I'm looking at older white Bermudian men, so there's an age difference and there's a gender difference between me and the people I'm interviewing. But the type of linguistic performances I'm interested in do seem to take place only in white spaces. So I'm talking about a very theatrical... Um, we all do it, and I think it might be interesting to have a conversation generally about when people mock an accent. It happens all the time. Um, Actually, I was I was reading an article in a book that's recently been published by Nikesh Shukla, and one of the writers in that, um, called Kieran Yates, talks about, I don't know if listeners will know the YouTube sensation One Pound Fish. Um, oh, I think they made it. It was, it was, a, uh, it was a hit. It was yeah. a chart hit. Um, and it's I think it's a good example of um, how easy it is to miss that linguistic mockery can be incredibly offensive. The, the humour of that piece basically rests on somebody living in the UK not having a British accent um, and uh, Kieran Yates says says something in the article like this is a chart hit that rests that success rests on mocking the dialect of my grandfather I, you know it's, it's really not that funny I've lost my thread a bit no it's fine so we, we'll <laughs> but you were asking about well I was saying so I, I'm just continuing this theme of discussing methods and research so Nancy right. you well, you said you've been going out to around Palestine for many years. Um, what this um, particular uh, field work to do that the researcher has written a book on, um, how long did that take you to do? So I was in the field on that occasion for nine months. The way it works is um, I tried to then make a network of connections in, in refugee camps because that's where the highest proportion of these manual labourers live due to the specific conditions in the refugee camps, in Palestinian refugee camps in the in uh, the West Bank. So what you do then is you try to get to know people gradually. Usually I'd offer to help with, um, let's say, NGO uh, funding applications for which they'd need maybe somebody who speaks English and get to know people a bit better and uh, through introductions that way I'd uh, start off by talking about uh, work in Israel which I had identified as the greatest source of Hebrew um, acquisition for these Palestinians. And uh, from that, somehow, gradually, you'd have to... Obviously, I couldn't mention directly that what I was hoping for was that they would discuss the Hebrew or show me how they use the Hebrew, because then that makes people very self-conscious. And uh, so what I got in the, in the research then was in these interviews where I'd ask them about their life experience, really, in kind of very general terms. I'd get what Hebrew is appropriate for them to mention to a foreign researcher who comes to their uh, refugee camp and is, uh, you know, maybe knows something about the conditions but can ask very seemingly material basic questions about so what tools do you use in your in your daily work or how do you actually get to your workplace in the morning and um, where do you get your permit to access. Uh, so I'd ask some kind of questions which would then lead to a narrative about their daily life, hoping then that some of the terminology, but then some of the 
most interesting data you'd get would be after a few months of living with these people and you get invited to a communal dinner or uh, and you get to witness some conversations between the people when they're more at ease and um, and then you get out your little ethnographic radar and uh, try to um, remember as much as possible to take notes afterwards. So I guess it's a combination then of participant observations and um, and interviews whereby the function of the interview is not only to gather data then, it is also to make yourself known and your kind of uh, interests known in the community, which is a very, very they're very close-knit communities, so the word spreads quite fast and, and make yourself a bit more approachable and not ingratiate yourself, but, you know, make it possible then for other sorts of situations to come about, like like dinner time or, or outings to mm. the shopping centre. Can I bite in? Please, yes. <laughs> so sometimes it's also important to notice that your participants have certain um, expectations from you as a researcher and from they kind of think about you uh, as a person being interested in this in one particular thing. And I'm thinking about my study where I was interested in multiplicity of voices and multiplicity of experiences of life here, right? So I was, I've observed that there, uh, during my participant observations, I observed that there were people who were developing new speaking styles and that they existed. But then I started doing my field work and at the beginning I thought I would use the snowball technique. So you ask a person to give you contact details to a person who could meet my, your criteria and then you go and interview their friends. So it's a friend of a friend technique. Of course. But that uh, was a bit useless for me <laughs> at some point because there, because of the fact that there was tension in my community. So people who were speaking in new ways were perceived as unreal and weird people by people who are more nationally oriented. And when I asked them to give me contact details to other people, to other participants, the nationally oriented individuals would be like, oh, I know a good person for your study. And then they would uh, give me contact details to people who were like them. And at some point I was just stuck with all the, like, um, like in a circle of friends who were very similar and had very similar life stories. And uh, that was interesting on its own. <laughs> that was fascinating. But I had to develop other ways to get to the people who were actually also part of this community who existed but who were not easily um, approachable in a way because the other people didn't want me to interview them they were like oh no you, you should not talk to them so then you have to find your other ways to get to them which is um, also quite uh, I think that shows you that research in general when you're conducting research in social sciences can be skewed because of your very methods. So sometimes uh, researchers may not be aware of like all the discourses that there are just because they use certain methods. So you use this friend of a friend technique and then you're like, you have just one story in a way, right? And, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's an illusion that you have multiple yeah. individuals. Yeah. And same. you can end up making very big claims, but it may not be the full picture. So that's what I'm trying to... Well, I mean, in fact, the very divide that your research suggests might exist was what was making it hard for you in the first place to yeah. find the, the individuals to express that. Because also, like, I during my interviews, I would talk with those people about uh, other members of the Polish transnational community who would meet my criteria, and they often said, yes, there are those people who speak in new ways, and they would reflect on their language use, and they would make comments about them. But then when I asked them about contact details to these people, they were like, no, we're no longer friends. 
So <laughs> it's, it's kind of difficult, but you know, you 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 have to work harder to get to those people actually and to make them interested. And they have other reasons to participate. So you can see that some people. So for instance, in my case, some people participated because um, they wanted to participate because they were so. You know, nationally oriented, interested in Polishness of whatever sort, and then they felt obliged to share those stories because of the very topic of my research. Mm -hmm. And then there were people who were like those cosmopolitan speakers participated for other reasons. So they said, "Oh, I really value education. I want to help you." And that was you can see that they're guided by different values, I guess, for <laughs> like different reasons at least. Leonie, how are you going about finding migrants and refugees in the current German integration system to talk to? Are you going in via the route of authority or are you going by a back door? Um, so I'm just designing my methodology at the moment. I'm okay. go preparing to go into the field in a year from now. So I'm still in the early course, stages. Yes. Um, that being said, I have concentrated my master's uh, research on the same topic. So in my master's, I got in touch with several language instructors at these government-funded schools. And I conducted semi-structured interviews with them um, to understand their perspective on the system. And I've stayed in touch with them, and they're going to try to help me get access to the schools as uh, a volunteer. The challenges I'm going to be facing is uh, getting approval from, from the schools. I might have to get approval from the um, Federal Office of Migration and Refugees because they fund these courses, and I might, it'll be challenging to actually get fully informed consent uh, of everyone in these classrooms if I'm going to be doing recordings. So I have a lot of methodological details to tease apart, but in general, my methods will be very similar to Nancy's. So very long field work between a year and a year and a half in these schools, um, spending as much time as possible with migrants and refugees to develop a relationship so I can spend time with them outside of school, try to understand their journey more clearly but also mix in with interviews so that I can get more pointed um, questions across. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating for me as an outsider to this incredible world that you know, this sounds exactly what an anthropologist would do, but it's, it's the mixture of the two disciplines exactly that you've been talking about, that you can't really separate the two from each other. Well, I, have a, I've, I think I have an interesting uh, education. Instead of studying linguistic anthropology at a, at a US institution where that's much more established, I studied linguistics in my undergrad and in my MPhil, and then I moved into the anthropology department. So um, I'm really taking the two methods and putting them together rather than the streamlined approach of actually studying the field. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the main aims of the conference that we're organising at the moment is to promote linguistic anthropology as a discipline. Well, let's, let's discuss more about this conference in the final five to ten minutes or so. Yeah. So this is happening at, at the end of March. Just as a backstory, um, this is our second conference. We ran one at the beginning of this year, in April, um, and uh, it was originally Nancy, Kinga, uh, and I with another colleague who's no longer on our team, um, and this year we have a chance to work with Rosie. Um, and our idea basically was that um, our research wasn't really getting enough platforms in the UK, and we wanted to provide one for people in our field um, to have a bigger discussion, be able to have a discussion about these topics that are really not being covered enough, in our opinion, in European academia. Yeah. Nancy, do you feel this, this subject is much bigger in the, in the US? I think it is a bit bigger in the US, but um, the more platforms, the better, I guess, in general. In Europe, it's not there. It's um, probably it's like... It's growing. It's growing. <laughs> there is interest, you can tell, and mm -hmm. that's what we kind of saw last year, that we had a lot of people 
interested in the conferences and we got a lot of abstracts mm-hmm. and, all over the world yes and, and many people participated in the conferences auditors as well so we're hoping that we're like uh provoking further discussion on those topics and mm-hmm. that we can make it more i don't know established it's, it's already established in a way but uh, like more I think in Europe we've inherited knowledge from our disciplines which are to do with anthropology and part of, let's say, the European history of colonial expeditions, etc. We have acquired this, we have this baggage of, um, especially yeah, in area studies, whereby we've acquired a lot of knowledge about the world, but in a, in a way connected to European power that now we are still grappling with and trying to yeah really challenge our disciplines in light of different perspectives maybe from around the world but Europe does have a tradition of knowing a lot about yeah. language yeah, yeah. and then and also about anthropology it's just making it into a modern discipline that would reflect maybe some of the um, new ways of looking at identity and interaction and constructed categories like what we are going to try and look at which is migration and national identity and then how these are actually fluid and challenged and contested and also replicated and and used to include and exclude certain categories of persons so I don't. I the European and the American, U.S. I mean North American experiences are slightly different due to our history, but we do have yeah. a lot of very, very rich scholarship over the centuries from uh, area studies. Yes, and I think that there are actually many people in Europe who do similar things to what linguistic anthropologists in the U.S. would do, but mm. they've called differently many times, and mm. we have those multiple names for the same kind yes, of thing. <laughs> so maybe that's where we uh, are coming from, that we wanted to bring them all mm. together. I mean, would you say that there is any useful distinction that can be made between social linguistics and linguistic anthropology, or are they just two sides of the same coin? I think there is uh, there is a significant difference, okay. but they are very, very related fields. With that, with, at the risk of being attacked by my colleagues, I would say that in general, sociolinguistics is interested in how social factors affect language use. So if you think about traditional variationist studies and things like that, so how do things like gender and religion and ethnicity and things like that play into the language we use? Whereas I think linguistic anthropologists start from the premise that language is social practice already. Um, so it's, it's, it's always an interaction with all of these, all of these factors. So I think there's a slight, <coughs> slight move, nuance. They're moving in the same direction, yeah. really, these disciplines. And there are other related disciplines, yeah. like philosophy of language. And we, mm-hmm. I mean, we wouldn't um, monitor these borders very uh, very yeah. carefully, maybe. We'd, we'd see it more as a project of, of bringing what is necessarily a complex way of looking at uh, language in society. And bringing all these themes together but I think the distinction would which we would make is that these categories these social categories we would not say that they are distinct and then related to language what we'd see is that they're constitutive of each other and what does what does unite all of our approaches I think would be definitely the emphasis on field work so as opposed to let's say theoretical linguists we do require that anybody who participates has been in the field, recorded how people speak, and then try to both 
familiarise themselves with how the speakers see their own categories and their place in society and use language to maybe perform that in certain ways that are relevant to this immediate context and then also how everybody else receives that performance so we are we are definitely looking at the performance so we want that material from the field we want that data which we would call then the linguistic data we don't we we cannot accept things that are let's say uh, you know found in a laboratory or mm -hmm. in the imagination yeah. of a specific yeah. linguist <laughs> i think i think that that where sociolinguistics where sociolinguistics has moved into what we call its third wave it's where it has drawn on anthropology yeah. it's it's where it has borrowed concepts from anthropology and become more open to anthropology so the boundaries are fluid and Nancy's right we wouldn't want to monitor them yeah. um, and that's why we want to bring them together in this conference. In this conference. Perhaps just a thing to end on that there's a, a small amount of linguistics in popular culture at the moment with this film Arrival which you feel is terribly old-fashioned it's thing called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis which is not where the field is moving at the moment. No so the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is, is a little bit of an outdated theory in linguistics it proposes that the structure and content of your language affects the way that you think and see the world. Um, so the classic example is if you're from a cold country you, you may have several more words for white and for snow than if not. The Inuit have 23 words for snow and this, yeah, yeah. This, this kind of thing. So in Arrival the aliens that Amy Adams playing a linguistics professor has to learn the language of and translate have something called uh, non-linear syntax and what that means in the film is that um, their handwriting or their, their orthographic system uh, has lots of circular symbols that represent entire phrases uh, rather than say an alphabet like we might have in, in English and the hypothesis in the film is very Sapir-Whorfian in that this circular syntactic orthographic system means that the aliens can see into the future and into the past um, which when Amy Adams learns language means that she becomes all-knowing <laughs> so I, I, having attended this uh, film with a bunch of linguists we, we went away and had a laugh about it but um, I think probably the most accurate thing about the film was the representation of the linguistic professor's office which looked very like a linguistics office office uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of, it, 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 it left reality there yeah <laughs> Um, well, I hope you forgive me for that slightly light end. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, join us next week on In Our Spare Time. <laughs>